This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Our community continues to navigate the complexities of the impacts following the horrific findings of the Lisquay, the missing. A day to honor the young ones lost at residential schools and help heal those who survived. The Prime Minister noticeably absent from any formal events. They invited you. We have sent him two invitations. The backlash as Justin Trudeau takes a break in Tofino. And turbulence for those who want to travel. Countries will be modifying their, their acceptance of different vaccine programs. Why there could soon be an answer for those who are missing a matching dose. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us on our first ever National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, the start of healing for First Nations and some soul searching for many Canadians. Today is about acknowledging the brutal history of the residential school system, the children who never came home and the generational trauma for survivors and their families. John Hua joins us now live from Vancouver. There's a lot of pain to address, John, but there's a lot of promise too. Yeah, that's right. Today was a day to remember, to honor, to learn, and to most importantly listen. And as you can hear behind me, we have a wonderful group, a drumming circle performed by hereditary chiefs. And the man in blue in the middle is Frank Alec, a residential school survivor himself. And no matter what gathering you are at across BC or across Canada, there are plenty of personal stories to share about the horrors experienced in residential schools. It began with a welcome song and a call to bear witness the unbearable truth. I am an Indian residential school survivor. I was sexually assaulted at the age of six. I'm a day school survivor. I was assaulted by a priest. This gathering of thousands at the Vancouver Art Gallery, a call for reconciliation for the gut-wrenching pain caused by residential schools spanning generations. It's an emotional day for me. I have a lot of friends who died <laughs> in those schools. For survivor Barney McLeod smudging with sage during this first national day for truth and reconciliation means healing by helping others. It's my duty. My duty as a, an elder for my, for my nation. To help the people. The strength to share spread across the region. From North Vancouver to Mission, where the inspiration for Orange Shirt Day, Phyllis Webstad, was stripped of her colorful clothing 48 years ago. The truths are the same all across Canada about uh, being taken away from our homes and our families and the effects that that has. In the nation's capital surrounding the centennial flame on Parliament Hill, a symbolic reminder of the children taken from their parents 
never to be seen again. Of residential schools, we're still here. All of these kids right now would be in it. Back in Vancouver, this historical day is about fighting for hope for the future. While making everyone understand the horrors of the past. The Catholic school tried to beat that out of us, our culture, who we are. Then there is Meh, the grandfather, standing tall, watching over Indigenous people as they work to move forward. I survived, and I only survived because I believe in my culture. And like the message of this warrior song, the call to action on this day for truth and reconciliation will only grow strong. Now, as I mentioned, this isn't a moment for me to talk. It's really for all of us to listen. I have Frank Alec here, our residential school survivor, also hereditary chief Wass. Please tell me what this day means for you as a residential school survivor and a hereditary chief. Well, what it means to me is uh, it means a lot, uh, especially if uh, Canada, right across Canada, uh, people are recognizing and finally acknowledging the fact that uh, this is real. This is a, a true horror that, that has happened in this country, and it still continues to happen day to day. And um, it's one of those things that people need to realize. Uh, part of the reconciliation is for uh, the general public of Canada, the general public of all the provinces across Canada, to start reconciling amongst yourselves as well. Uh, that's the only way that you can start uh, this reconciliation process with us, uh, the First Nations and Indigenous people. And without truth, there is no reconciliation. Chris, Sophie? All right. Uh, incredibly wise words. Thank you, John. John Hua reporting in Thank Vancouver you. for us. Thank you. Of course, in May, the announcement of the discovery of the unmarked graves of about 200 children at the former Kamloops Indian Residential School shocked many Canadians and jolted the national conversation about reconciliation into the headlines. The Tecumlips Tshwetmik emerged as a leading agent of change, and Nitu Garcha is near the former residential school site for us tonight. She joins us live. Nitu, this was a day of powerful emotions. That's right, Chris. It was quite the show of support and solidarity here and globally with people around the world tuning in for the live streamed event near the former Kamloops Indian Residential School behind me, where we learned today that new ground penetrating radar survey results turned up artifacts that are now being analyzed. And Cook P. Roseanne Casimir believes that more unmarked burial sites will be found here in the days and weeks to come. She says making today's events, which attracted hundreds of people, that much more impactful. Drumming and singing are among the traditions that Tecumloops Tshwetmik community says it's reclaiming. Despite the efforts to eradicate them. Dolly Thomas attended the former Kamloops Indian Residential School after her father was murdered. For me personally, we're beaten in our heads that we're no good, that we're liars, that we're thieves. That's a tape that runs constantly in my head. Now, on the country's first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, she's among hundreds attending the event at the Powwow Arbor within steps of the unmarked burial sites confirmed through ground-penetrating radar 
near the school. So many memories, so much pain, and I wish they would tear it down. I really do, because I feel that it's keeping us at a level where we're not healing, and we need to heal. But in order to heal, many here say critical steps are needed. Renewing calls for politicians and the church to release school attendance records to help reunite families with lost loved ones. There is now judicial approval for the destruction of those records. And renewing calls for a papal apology as to Kamloops Cookpie Roseanne Casimir gets set to travel to the Vatican with a delegation in December. The Pope has given apologies throughout various parts of the world, but has not come to Canada. And knowing that it has to be a part of that reconciliation process and the calls to action really needs to be at that forefront. Because continuing to share and believe the truth about our collective history, National Chief Roseanne Archibald says, Make no mistake, this is genocide. Is what will lead to hope and healing, even through the hardship. To be kept in that pain is not reconciliation. <laughs> to be kept in that darkness is not healthy. Amazing stuff, Neetu, and uh, we won't let you go before addressing the, the controversy involving Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The Tecumlips to Schwepmig say they extended at least a couple of invitations to the PM to attend today's ceremony. He didn't go, even though he was actually in B.C. today. That's right, Chris. We learned that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is vacationing in Tofino right now and that he has spoken to some residential school survivors by phone. Cookpie Roseanne Casimir told me today that she's disappointed that he hasn't responded to what she calls heartfelt invitations for him to come to this community and engage with them since the announcement of the unmarked burial sites in late May. In an interview during the election campaign, I asked Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about his plans to come to Kamloops. Here's more from that sit down and Cookpie Roseanne Casimir reaction today. Again, Mr. Trudeau, when will you go to Kamloops? I will go to Kamloops as soon as that, uh, that as, as it is uh, right and possible for me to go there. I am truly saddened that he was not able to join us today. I did hold out on hope that maybe that he would be here. We have sent him two invitations and but you know I also realized and did see him you know, truly honoring our survivors back east. So for me, that does give hope that we know that in the future, he will be here. And I hope sooner than later. Now, late this afternoon, our global news camera caught up with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as he was walking on a Tofino beach to ask why he didn't attend today's events here in Kamloops. He didn't answer those questions. Here's some of that exchange. Why not in person, sir? They invited you. Now, as you heard earlier, the community is hopeful that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will come visit them and engage soon. They also hope that what is a federal holiday will also be recognized as a provincial statutory holiday. Chris. Neetu Garcha reporting for us in Kamloops tonight. Thanks, Neetu.
In Penticton, an orange wave descended on the peach, an iconic landmark in the city. Hundreds of people, including survivors and their families, walked five kilometers to honor children who died while forced to attend residential schools. I thought I was just going to have a few of my friends, and it's amazing how much this has grown. So I'm uh, amazed at the support within this community. Participants walked down Lakeshore Drive to the Residential School Memorial on Penticton Indian Band land, approximately 6,000 steps to symbolize the thousands of children discovered at unmarked burial sites. Today is about just listening and understanding and acknowledging that we have a history um, that isn't so great and then working in a way that's very personal to make things better. In contrast to the day's events, the Penticton Indian Band Chief and Council issued a statement saying it would not recognize the new National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The band says there has been no real substantive action to date by the federal government to show genuine commitment to reconciliation. The legacy of residential schools continues with intergenerational trauma. The number of Indigenous children in ministry care is a major indicator something isn't working the way it should. A local lawyer says it's shameful that kids are still being isolated from their families and their culture. Kamal Karamali reports. For Jeanette Price, every day is a battle. I feel I'm being discriminated against. To be reunited with her one-year-old grandson who is in the children's ministry's care. Because both parents couldn't care for him, they still are on the streets. Price is Kwakwakawak. The ministry has allowed her custody of her teenage grandson, Caden, but not the toddler. She suffered from depression and substance abuse, but has been clean for three years now. I think totally unfair. The same ministry office already said I've addressed my mental health and my substance abuse. It's just ongoing racism, discrimination. It's why Métis lawyer Rosalind Chambers compares BC's child welfare system to modern-day residential schools. I believe that the current child protection system is residential schools part two. An issue, she says, has been ongoing for decades. Indigenous children taken away from their families and culture and often placed in non-Indigenous settings. Possibly the easiest administrative option for them, but the most disruption. She says Indigenous families are often expected to meet a higher standard than non-Indigenous parents when it comes to getting their kids back in their care. The ministry wants Indigenous parents to be perfect. In response to a global news request, the BC Ministry of Children and Family Development says we know there's much more still to do to address the over-representation of Indigenous children in care in BC. I'm seeing that children are not um, maintaining their connection to their extended family and their Indigenous nation and community. Métis lawyer Francis Rosner argues the solution is to allow families to have a greater say in who takes care of a child. As I would like to see more supports put in place for the family to remain together. Or BC and Canada may continue to repeat history. In 10 years or 20 years, there'll be an apology for what these families are going through. Time some families don't have. They're taking our kids again, just in a different way. Kamal Karamali, Global News. We want you to know we understand these stories might be triggering for some viewers. And if you or someone you know needs support, please call the number on your screen. It's 1-866-925-4419. And that crisis line operates 24 hours a day. 
Well, the great unknown putting travel plans on hold. Millions of Canadians are waiting to see if their vaccines will be recognized abroad. What Dr. Bonnie Henry says about it and why you might be able to book a winter vacation after all. That's next on the News Hour. The Indigenous interpretation of the BC flag created to start a conversation where you can buy your own version now and help a great cause too. Coming up later. And Canucks fans on the edge of their seats with some major developments involving contracts for two of their best young players. That's later in sports. More breaking news tonight in the ever-changing situation involving masks in B.C. schools. The Burnaby School District has become the latest to expand its mask mandate and add students all the way from kindergarten straight through grade three. The district says it made the call to make masks mandatory for all students in all grades after meeting with Fraser Health's medical officer. The new rules take effect on Monday. Well, many British Columbians who took the advice of public health officials and got the first vaccine available are frustrated, not knowing if their mixed doses will be recognized for travel outside of Canada. But Richard Zussman tells us there does appear to be reason for some optimism for people who fall into that category as third doses are now being offered to vulnerable populations in this province. It's a decision that could cause turbulence for Canadians heading to the United States. Which COVID-19 vaccines will count for full immunization? We should expect in the weeks and months ahead to see more pragmatism reign when it comes to vaccination requirements. Right now, the U.S. does not require full COVID immunization to travel into the country, but that will change come November. Right now, the U.S. CDC has approved for use in the country three vaccines, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and Moderna. What they've not approved is AstraZeneca, any mixed dosing and intervals between doses longer than six weeks. No decision has been made yet on exactly what vaccines or combos will be allowed for travel, but experts say they do expect the U.S. to change course. This approach of, well, you have to have two doses from the same manufacturer, I think it is inevitable that this particular um, policy will be um, forsaken. One of the big reasons, efficacy. BC's own data shows how effective both AstraZeneca and mixed doses are. What we're saying is that it's really good protection. The uh, the mRNA vaccines have phenomenal protection, which is kind of really unusual for us. One of Canada's challenges is a lack of unified vaccine passport. It may not be ready for November. BC health officials are acutely aware of this, especially about travel concerns to the U.S. from those with mixed doses or even AstraZeneca. If it still looks like it's going to be a problem, then absolutely we'll be providing people with what they need. BC's primary focus for where vaccine will go is getting prepared for when there's approval to vaccinate those under 12, as well as targeting a homeless population where there's been breakthrough cases. It could make sense um, to have an extra dose to provide it to everybody in that situation to try and dampen down the transmission. As for booster shots in general, travel or not, Dr. Henry says it doesn't look like they will be necessary this year for the general population, no matter the brand of vaccine you received. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And the latest COVID-19 numbers are trickling in a little later than usual today, but we have some to share with you now. There are 749 new cases in this province today. 145 people are in intensive care. We have nine more COVID-related deaths. 
and 81% of eligible British Columbians are now fully vaccinated. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry to talk more about that vaccination number. We see it slowly climbing each day. Keith, what is the goal for health officials? What are they aiming for and, and how soon can we hit that? Yeah, that's a question that's been asked literally since the start of the vaccination program. So uh, Dr. Henry, in that interview, though, for the first time talking about a number she has not really revealed before, and that's the number in the mid-90s in terms of percentages in a lot of communities in B.C. Here's Dr. Henry. Absolutely into the 90s. I'd like to see it in the, if we can, and we've, we've been there for, for other uh, illnesses like measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, so can we get it into the mid-90s in most communities? Where we're seeing the challenges right now are that we're not even into the, the high 70s and 80s in some communities. And that means um, that there are people of all ages who are not yet protected. So how long will it take to get to 90 or 95 percent? We're going up about 0.1 point a day, first dose, 0.2 points a day, day, second dose. We've prepared a chart that shows you a bit of a timeline, potentially. This is just a projection. Take a look at this chart. Uh, Right now we're at uh, the blue top line there is the first dose. Bottom line is the second dose. You can see some targets there. We hope to hit 90 percent of the first dose on October 20th, 90 percent perhaps on November 14th. If we stick to the same rollout that we've been saying, We've been seeing for some weeks and they merge at December 9th. Now, again, big caveat on this one is we may very well start to vaccinate young kids between the age of five and 11. That will increase increase the size of the pool of people eligible to be vaccinated. So even though we may hit 90 percent at some point in October with first dose, if suddenly kids five to 11 come on board, that number will tumble down back into the 80s and we sort of start inching up again. So it may very well be into the new year if kids start being vaccinated to reach that 90 or 95 percent. No, no need for alarm if we start to see that number tumble once uh, kids are being vaccinated. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. All right. Still ahead, a pilgrimage to ease the pain. Really overwhelming was to see all the sidewalks filled with people. How the Tsleil-Waututh are supporting their survivors of residential schools. Also ahead, Canada's new cyber warriors. Why Canadian veterans are signing up for a coding boot camp. We've witnessed a lot of hurt today and there's a long path toward healing. But many communities are also using today as an opportunity to take their power back. On this first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, members of the Tsleil-Waututh Nation set out on a pilgrimage to retrace their steps to school. Global's Michael Newman sat down with an elder who is sharing his powerful journey. Where are you at? Right here. Today was a day of reflection for Stan Thomas of the Tsleil-Waututh Nation. And that was the old, that side of the, what we call there, the girl side and the boy side, and this was the girl side. As he looks back at photos of his childhood, recalling his time at St. Paul's Residential School, the painful memories start to flood back in. I was wondering why I was, you know, I, my mom was crying or I was waving at her. At the age of six, he was the last of eight children who went to residential school. And while he said some nuns treated them well, his experience echoes some of the same traumas heard by many other survivors. We were told to go kneel in the hallway and the nun forgot us there. We both end up sleeping on our knees, like we had to go on our knees to be punished. We ended up against the lockers. 
As history of that time comes to the forefront of the whole country today, Stan, his daughters, and members of the community are retracing the steps of the children that were forced to make the 8.5-kilometer walk from Slabertooth Reserve all the way to the former site of St. Paul's Residential School. The purpose? To start the healing journey for the community as one heart and one mind. We are all one family today, and we are going to walk, and we're going to let those feelings out through our sweat, through our breath. Along the journey, residents of the North Shore community lined the streets in orange shirts, sharing their support. And although the occasion was a somber one, the exchange of raised hands and soft smiles propelled the walkers to keep going. Seeing all the support from the people on the side on the sidewalk makes you feel, you know, real good. The community seems like we're all here. Raise my hand to them all. There's more people supporting us than more than I ever thought there would be. The day ended with a shared ceremony with elders from both Squamish and Musqueam nations expressing their truth about being in residential school and were inspired for the future, seeing this as a hopeful moment in our country's history, remembering, as Stan's daughter Chief Jen Thomas says, that reconciliation is about a journey, not a destination. Michael Newman, Global News. An indigenous redesign of the B.C. flag is now available for sale with profits supporting survivors of residential schools. The flag was created by First Nations artist Luann Neal this past summer. She reimagined the existing flag to better represent the province's cultural makeup and to start a conversation about it. Now her design is being printed and sold by Vancouver's The Flag Shop with all proceeds going to the Residential School Survivors Society. Up next, truth under siege in Afghanistan. There is no law, there is no rule of law. The publisher of a popular newsletter worried for his colleagues back home. Also tonight, the true meaning of sustainability. How a new complaint might dictate who can use it as a selling point. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. A BC man who made it to Canada from Afghanistan says he's worried about his former colleagues who were still there. As Ahmad Agahi reports, some of his concerns stem from the popularity of the Afghan pub- publication they all work on. In one hour, this post reached like 50,000 people. Sanjar Sohail is safe here. From his Langley home, he is trying his best to do his job and feed his audience of more than one million people desperate for credible information about what is unfolding in Afghanistan. The journalists are, 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 are destroyed. They are not able to go out and do the same way that they did reporting before the collapse of Kabul. Sohail is the founder and chief publisher of what he proudly describes as one of the most read and only independent and secular newspapers in Afghanistan. It is called Hashtasob, which translated to English means 8 a.m. He says the print stopped since he escaped his most recent visit to the country this summer, weeks before the Taliban came to power in August. 
but he has kept the publication's online platforms going remotely. I have like six, seven uh, female journalists that they are now at home, unable to do any reporting because they are not allowed to work. So Heil says the Taliban have contacted him and advised against writing about what could be deemed controversial. And he feels many journalists like him could be self-censoring to keep themselves and their families safe. Kindly asking the international community, the democracies around the world, to help those people to get out of Afghanistan, to bring them to safety, to provide them with the help and support to be able to start their life somewhere else and do the job from outside Afghanistan because there is no guarantee for their safety. In this critical moment for his country that could change the course of people's lives for generations into the future, he fears history may not be written correctly. Emadagahi, Global News. A cross-country recruitment campaign is making stops on Vancouver Island this week, offering a program to help retrain Canadian Armed Forces veterans into software and cybersecurity professionals. The Coding for Veterans National Career Caravan has seen the number of enrolled students increase during the pandemic. The programs can be completed in just 10 months online through the University of Ottawa. So far, the uptake has been huge, with graduates continuing to prove they're a new untapped source of talent for the sector. In their DNA is a protection defense kind of mindset. And that's what this is, uh, IT, cybersecurity and IT is really about protecting uh, a wide range of uh, identity, property, ideas that uh, uh, exist in in the civilian economy or in the military economy. Every year, roughly 10,000 people leave the Canadian Armed Forces at an average age of 45. The program has also been expanded to include Afghan citizens who worked alongside Canadian troops in Afghanistan and have been able to immigrate to Canada. In Health Matters tonight, the pandemic has really exposed cracks in the fractured relationship between Indigenous people in Canada and our health care system. For some First Nations, it's caused hesitation to even get vaccinated. As Global's Jamie Maraca reports, that has experts worried about preventable deaths. Meta Mesqua is helping her family heal the best way she knows how. Jingle dancing outside of Regina General Hospital where her cookum, her grandmother, is fighting against COVID-19. It makes me want to break down every single day to knowing that how much of my family is getting sick. First Nations communities across Canada are being disproportionately impacted by the virus. The latest numbers from the federal government reveal COVID cases on reserves are now more than three times that of the respective rate in the general population. It can be devastating because there's severe overcrowding in many of these communities. Some of these communities don't have access to clean water. There's an overrepresentation of certain health factors that put them at risk, like diabetes. Nahio family doctor James Makokas also worries as hospitals in Alberta and Saskatchewan become overwhelmed, Indigenous people seeking care are being told to return to their communities. There's very few, if any, um, health practitioners who can provide primary care, let alone acute care, in an Indigenous community. And why he's focused on prevention part of a project aiming to vaccinate 100% of the Indigenous population. 
by taking the vaccine, it is asserting our treaty promise to health. But without continued access to medication and services, as well as land-back discussions and a greater understanding of cultural-based care, Makoka's fears continued health inequity. <laughs> Muskwa was initially told by hospital staff she needed special permission to dance here. Permission to be on land her ancestors have inhabited for generations. It's just a wonderful feeling that you get knowing that your prayers are being answered, that your healing dances are working. Standing her ground to proudly practice what's been passed down. Jamie Morocco, Global News, Toronto. Just ahead, a journey of hope. It's who we are and it's in our DNA. The new documentary for love, redefining what home and family really are. And from the war in the woods to the battle in the boardroom, how a complaint to the Competition Bureau could play out in the forest industry. The latest battle in the logging industry is going to be fought in office buildings over the use of the word sustainable. BC Forest Industry uses it as a selling point, arguing this natural resource is being managed with the environment in mind. But a leading conservation group is challenging that by filing a complaint with the Competition Bureau. Paul Johnson tells us why. The confrontation at Ferry Creek has dominated the debate over old-growth logging in B.C. in recent months. But rewind almost 30 years to the first war in the woods to find the origins of this latest twist. The Canadian forest industry wanted to green its image. So in the late 1990s, what they did was they approached, for example, a Canadian Standards Association and say, give us a certification. Devin Page is a lawyer with EcoJustice, a Vancouver-based group that's challenging the industry's use of the word sustainable in the marketing of many B.C. forest products. For example... They say products made from these old-growth trees recently logged on Vancouver Island would be identified as sustainable according to the current system. Their belief is that this type of forestry is not, in fact, sustainable. It's certification greenwashing. The CSA group is perceived by many Canadians as being an impartial and fact-based reviewer of countless products. But Page says in the case of BC's forest products, their examination is limited. They don't ever actually go on the ground and say, this is sustainable. Well, the CSA group couldn't be reached for comment. Canada's Competition Bureau confirmed last week that EcoJustice's complaint was persuasive enough to launch an investigation by their deceptive marketing practices branch. It's a story that started in British Columbia. You know, we've always been at the forefront of environmental concern. Stuart Meir is with the industry advocacy group ResourceWorks and says while eco-justice's intentions may be good, he thinks they're not fully informed about the reality of forest practices in B.C. I think you would say that forests in British Columbia um, are meeting tests of sustainability. B.C.'s top industry may now have its image in the hands of federal bureaucrats. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Well, we uh, looked behind us out the window a few times today when we heard that rain pounding down. Let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon with more on the weather forecast. Once again, though, it looks kind of bright behind you. 
Uh, exactly. A nice little break behind me here. You can see that little bit of blue sky off in the distance. So we're in behind the main cold front. You likely heard it last night coming down hard at times. And even during the day today, as uh, Sophie said, it was hard as well at times. I was There was a huge downpour in Lynn Valley. Here's a look at the rainfall totals. Just to give you perspective, we're talking about over 50 millimeters of rain along the North Shore in the last 24 hours. Pitt Meadows, 31. Delta got 43 out towards Agassiz, 33. And look at out through House Sound more than 70 millimeters in a 24-hour period. This was the scene in West Vancouver. Thanks so much to Tom for that. That was near uh, Park Royal area, and it was like that, as I mentioned, in the Lynn Valley area. And this is put, looking at the YVR totals, as us at the sixth wettest September on record, which is quite exceptional when you think we've had well below seasonal uh, rainfall right all the months uh, up until January of 2021. So since January, we've had below average precipitation and now we've got a soaker now tomorrow a nice bright spot for us we get in behind things but look at the system that's driving onto the north coast that is going to impact our weekend yes your weekend everyone we had been advertising sunshine but it looks like by late saturday sort of in the afternoon or at least dinner time hours you'll likely see some showers push in in the meantime enjoy your friday yes sunshine not exactly warm but 15 degrees we'll take it with a bit of blue sky and then as i mentioned late saturday we'll start to see rainfall and that takes us into our Sunday with a chance of showers as well so the weekend not looking as nice as what was initially anticipated. This is a great shot from Sid Scotchman. This is from Lillooet today of course during their march uh, and it was nice to see it dry for everyone there. Mm-hmm. All right back to you guys. Good timing for that. All right thanks Christy. All right Squire standing by now with a look ahead to sports and maybe just maybe some big signings for the Canucks. Looks like they are very close to getting their two unsigned stars back into Vancouver. Word is that Quinn Hughes has agreed to a six-year deal. Elias Pettersson is close to finalizing a three-year deal which is good news for all them. Sure is. Also later, the power of love, how the younger generation is reclaiming their indigenous culture. Connects Twitter was on fire today, Squire. Yeah, well, this has been uh, what everyone's been waiting for, especially Travis Green. He was not happy. He didn't have these two guys in camp. And the word is Quinn Hughes has agreed to a new contract with the Vancouver Canucks and his buddy Elias Pettersson is very close to a new one as well. They've been working out together while their agents work out new contracts with Jim Benning. Nothing is official yet, but the rumor is the deal for Hughes will be six years long, just under $8 million a season. Pettersson's deal will likely be three years in length. He's not as interested in a long contract. He's thinking have a few good years and then go after the really big money. I don't think the Canucks want to have a splashy announcement until everything is signed, sealed and delivered. And that means both of them. We are hearing, if not tomorrow, Saturday. So this should all be over soon. Uh, Brock Besser wasn't able to practice today with the Canucks. They're not saying what was wrong with him. Hopefully nothing serious and he'll be back tomorrow. Uh, One of the new Canucks, we've been talking a lot about new Canucks this week, is former Winnipeg defenseman Tucker Pullman. The Canucks brought him in after we saw his usage increase each year with the Jets. When the Canucks signed Tucker Pullman to a four-year, $10 million free agent contract in the summer, many Canuck fans had one question. Who's Tucker Pullman? And that's fair. He's only played 120 NHL games over three seasons with the Jets. And he's not the kind of guy who sticks out to the average fan. 
but to his coaches and teammates, that's a different story. He was very patient with the puck last game. Um, made a ton of little plays that a lot of people don't notice, and I think that that's, that's really what we need. So uh, big and strong, um, kind of a beast in front of the net, super heavy, and, uh, and you know, being predictable and you know, playing fast is a big part of being hard to play against too, not just being physical. So you know, he has a lot of good elements that we needed, like I said, and you know, we're pumped to have him. He hasn't played a lot of games in the league. Uh, he's an older guy, that, but he has a strong understanding of what he is and how he needs to play, and, and uh, he's had a strong first week. Poolman, who's from Dubuque, Iowa, has been that steady second or third pairing defenseman in his brief NHL career. But with Quinn Hughes coming into camp late and Travis Hamannick's status up in the air, Poolman could be a key member of the defensive core. So far in camp, he's played alongside Oliver ekman Larson. That would make them right now the Canucks' top defensive pairing. They're getting to know him better and better each day here, and uh, he's great at communicating on the ice and, and talking about you know, going back for a puck, for example. You know, he's pretty predictable in where he's at on the ice at all times, and he's always talking, so it makes it great. It makes it easy. At 28, Pullman's really just starting his career. He's excelled at all previous levels and is doing that now in the NHL, just a little later than most. Yeah, I think I'd say definitely a late bloomer right by how definitions go. My mindset really hasn't changed since I've been 17, 18. It was just to show up and work hard and have a smile on my face and just enjoy, you know, being able to play hockey. Tomorrow, the BC Lions host Winnipeg at BC Place, 7 o'clock. The game will be on AM 730. Now, Last week, the Lions lost a game against Saskatchewan. They felt they should have won, but a late drive by the Riders beat BC. And one of the reasons they were able to score late in the game is because they had great field position, courtesy of a shank by punter Stefan Flintoff. Now, this is the shank. Like a golf shot, sometimes you just miss the mark by an inch or two. Flintoff is normally a reliable punter. He just had a bad moment at a bad time. Now, the Lions' defense could have bailed him out, but they weren't able to. Flintoff, though, is not going to let this mistake mess up his head. Um, no, I mean, after doing, you know, punting for so long, you learn to have a short memory. That's the biggest thing uh, with punting. So I think it's, uh, you know, like Ted Lasso, you see the show? Be a goldfish? Same way. Sam, do you remember... What animal has the shortest memory? A goldfish. That's right. It was a goldfish. The guys that are the best in the business have the shortest memories. They take what they can from it, they move on, and they, you know, just, yeah, make sure it doesn't happen again. All right, Yankees, Jays. Four games left for Toronto. Trying to get an American League wild card spot. This helps. Vladdy Guerrero off the top of the wall. Scores Marcus Simeon, Toronto up 2-1. But then in the sixth inning, Aaron Judge of the Yankees sentences this pitch to life beyond the wall. And Toronto's down 5-2 to the Yankees. But the good news is Boston lost 6-2 to Baltimore tonight. So that helps a little bit if, in fact, Toronto loses this game. (laughs) I love it all the time. Squire, you're the best. Up next, healing the trauma of residential schools. A message of hope from Indigenous youth. 
This is BC with Jay Durant, brought to you in part by Fortis BC, BC's energy solutions provider. We're only beginning to understand the lingering trauma of residential schools on generations of Indigenous people. But tonight, a new documentary called For Love is filled with hope for a better future. A younger generation is meeting the painful challenge with courage and resilience. Jay Durant introduces us to some of the survivors on tonight's This is BC. All these kids that I paddle with, we're all kids in care, so we barely know who we are and we don't know where we come from. The new documentary, For Love, looks at the impact of residential schools and Indigenous children in care. But layered throughout the film is a message of hope that showcases the strength of youth today and how they're embracing their history. Everyone's differences are not overcome, but they're celebrated. They deserve that. They have the right to know who they are, their culture, their clan, their tribe, their language. That's their innate, that's their inherent right. Wyona Sheldon and Christine Batosh grew up in the care system, removed from an abusive father when they were young. Just felt really alone. Just didn't feel like anything was going to be better. Um, it's a hard topic, so... But their story is of resiliency and the love and the support they've always had for each other. The house, um, and about finally learning the truth about where they came from. We knew Next nothing at all, yeah. The chiefs, they kind of looked at us and they're like, who's your parents? Who's your grandparents? <laughs> and I was just like, uh, so I told them and then they're just like, you're in the wrong clan. This is your clan, come here. For Love looks at communities sharing their culture, rebuilding nations, and revitalizing language. How do you say, I love you? Again. Again. That's where our oral traditions, our laws, our myths, our legends, that's where they're housed. It's, it's who we are and it's in our DNA. The Batashas drove eight and a half hours from Prince George to Vancouver to be there for the premiere. Not knowing entirely what to expect from the film, but knowing that they're proud to have been able to share their story. We thought for the longest time that we didn't have anybody who cared about us, and now we know that we have a whole, a whole village that cares about us and loves us. <laughs> Jay Durant, Global News. And of course, this has been a deeply emotional day. So if you or someone you know needs support, call that number on your screen 24 hours a day, 1-866-925-4419. Thank you very much to everybody who shared their stories with us today. Have a good night. Good night. Mm -hmm.